I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. Welcome to our last blog of 2018. Jackie Andrade is a professor of psychology at the University of Plymouth, whose work focuses on imagination and how we can imagine different futures for ourselves and use that to help change our behaviour. John May is also a professor in the School of Psychology at the University of Plymouth, and his work also focuses on imagination and how it affects decision-making, motivation and creativity. Over the last 20 years, they've developed an approach called functional imagery training, which has many insights to offer to our exploration of imagination and its ability to change the real world around us. I took the train to Plymouth, and we sat in Jackie's office and had a fascinating conversation that, as Jackie later put it after reviewing the transcript, is almost a whole manifesto for behaviour change. So, I started by asking them to give us an outline of functional imagery training. What is it, and what does their research tell us about how it works? So, functional imagery training is a counselling technique that we've developed over the last 20 years based on our research on desire Uh, that started with desire for drugs and junk food and so on, and then moved on to the question of how could we create cravings for healthy activities that people say they want to do but never quite feel like doing. Um, So functional imagery training grew out of that, and essentially it means enlisting from the client what it is they want to do, what ideas they've got about how to set about it, and then guiding them through their own mental imagery exercises um, to strengthen their desire, not only for the the end goal of being thinner or um, having more physical activity, but also for behaviours they need to do to get there, which might not be intrinsically pleasurable. What we're trying to do really is tackle the paradox that people often say they want to do things and they really do want to do things so they really do want to sort of drink less stop smoking and lose weight but their behavior isn't consistent with that so when they're faced with a choice you know a temptation they make the wrong one they make the one that has the short-term benefits of having a biscuit or cake or a cigarette or a drink that they can easily imagine and how nice that will be. And they don't take into account their longer-term goal that they equally strongly desire, if you ask them, but that's harder for them to imagine the benefits of not having the biscuit, not having a drink, not having a cigarette. And most approaches are all about giving stuff up, which is never yeah, pleasant. It's very hard to imagine so. not having something and yeah. have that be pleasant. So, so with functional imagery training, we want people in that situation where, say, they've just got home from work and they're, you know, they're thinking, oh, a cup of tea and a biscuit would be really nice. We want that image of, no, it was lovely outside, I'm going to go out for a run and, and I'll feel great while I'm doing that. We want that image to come to mind much more readily. So it's not about, oh, I oughtn't have the biscuit because I'm trying to be healthier. It's about, no, there's this other thing that I really want to do instead. So it's, it's having it's sort of almost 
because there because there was a thing that I, I heard about what you were doing on on the radio mm-hmm. on the thing on Radio Four, and you were doing something with a lemon. There was there was something particular. That's about right. Lemons. So this is part of our weight loss study, but we use the yeah. lemon for all sorts of purposes. But we didn't make the, yeah. the lemon exercise up. It's, no, that, yeah, that it's came a from a standard our, thing that yeah. um, some of our colleagues have done, or who also work on imagery. Yeah, but the good thing about the lemon exercise is it shows people that imagery can be multi-sensory and can feel like something as well as just be a picture in your head. So we ask people to imagine holding a lemon and noticing how it looks and then throw it up in the air and catch it and um, cut it in half and listen to the juice trickling into a glass and then some of it squirts in your eye. And often we notice if people wince or blink at that point. Um, It takes longer than that but it it helps people work in all the different senses. And, and people are often surprised yeah. that they did have a physical reaction mm. to mm. something that they were imagining. And the point of that is to show that imagery is real, in a sense, that it's there in your mind just as all of your other perceptions, mm. and you respond to it. Yeah, so it's so, linked with your emotions. So when we're then encouraging them to imagine doing things and imagine feeling things in, um, that will follow on from behaviours they make, um, it gives it a more bite, more yeah. reality and more emotional sort of Yeah, feeling. so with the physical activity example, you know, somebody might uh, sort of intuitively imagine going for a run and sort of just picture themselves looking sweaty and out of breath or bored or something. Mm. Um, we want to help them imagine how it's going to feel when they're noticing if the birds are singing and they're noticing their body feeling a bit more toned and noticing that how it actually gets easier after a while when you're warmed up Uh, or if they're not ready for any of that stuff to happen noticing how nice it is kind of going back into work after having had a shower and sort of feeling like you've done something you've Mm. got that sense of achievement and for a lot of people it's that it's that achievement and control and success if they feel like their life's been getting a bit out of hand mm. and so it gives people the confidence that they can actually do these little acts one at a time that add up to the goal they really want to achieve that previously they thought was a long way in the future mm. they can see that they're doing it day by day and what have been the the uh, could you just talk a bit about the, the, the results mm-hmm. from it or the impacts mm. of it so the weight loss trial is the the first big trial that we've done a functional imagery training we compared it with another counseling technique called motivational interviewing which is very well established Um, and what we found was that over six months where people had up to four hours of therapist contact time which is very little um, in that six months people lost four and a half kilos sorry four kilos in the functional imagery training group and about one in the other the control group but the really exciting thing was in the next six months where they had no contact from us at all people continued losing weight in the functional imagery training condition which is pretty much unheard of in weight loss trials so typically people regain 50 percent of the weight that they've lost mm. and they don't usually keep losing it so that supported Our approach where we train people to be their own therapists, we show them how to do this imagery, we give them plenty of reminders early on. Um, 
and generally after a year people were hardly aware they were doing it it had just become the way they thought about things and it's important we're not giving them a diet and we're not telling them what to do mm. they're all doing different things you know? so some people are following one way of eating less or exercising more other people are doing other things and all we're doing is helping them be motivated to do those things and to keep on towards their mm. long-term goal so and we've done it in other areas as well so weight loss is a big success for us mm. and one we've recently published but we've also been working with elite athletes who have a problem that you know, they all really want to be successful in their particular sport um, but every athlete loses occasionally or has an injury or has a sort of can't beat their personal best for a few mm. months or something. Or gets anxious. Or gets anxious about it. And, yeah. Um, and the, the ones who do succeed are the ones who can get through that. And that's so called resilience, you know, being able to take the knocks and carry on. Um, so in a similar way, we've been working with these sports people to help them... Um, focus on their long-term goals and not worry too much about the setbacks. And again, they all do it differently. They all have different things that they're worried about. So a footballer might be really anxious about being substituted in the set, halfway through the second half in every match or something. And we can work with them on that. And mm. another one might hate taking free kicks or penalties or something. And we can help them imagining getting better at that and how mm. it would feel for them. So mm. although you said working on the long-term goals, and that mm. is obviously what we want to help people achieve, the focus functional imagery training is very much on on building the desire yeah. for the steps the step, towards those step, goals. So rather than just goal-setting, which lots of behaviour change strategies do... We're focusing on, on finding what would feel good about, you know, playing well today or, you know, changing your focus of, you know, sort of worrying about X, focusing on, on Y instead. Um, and I think it's that short-term imagery that really makes a difference because it makes people want today to be a good day rather than thinking oh, I'll be glad when today's over and then I can start working on, on my long term goal mm-hmm. and because so there's different research that I've found about like the, the research with the people who learn to play the piano and mm. some of them imagine learning to play the piano and the other half actually practice mm. piano yeah. and they're pretty much as good all the ones where people imagine exercising a muscle that, um, that, that's where a lot of the research on imagery and performance has been sort of imagined rehearsal <coughs> against actual mm. rehearsal and especially in the sports area where mm. you might get people to imagine putting mm. tends to work with physical skills yeah. and, and that's focusing on actually doing the activity rather than the reasons why mm. you want to do it which is more where we're so but why does that stuff work because what do we know about so about we see imagery as um, something that's embodied so when you imagine you know, when you imagine taking a bite of a lemon it makes you salivate it may be you know if it squirts in your eye mm. maybe it makes you physically blink but even if you don't do it physically it's activating the, it's getting the muscles ready to do that so um, in studies where people have been asked to respond to words either with their hand or their foot if the word kick is shown people will be relatively faster to respond with their foot mm. than if the word grab is shown, for it instance. It also primes your perception for things mm. as well. So um, if you're imagining um, where an object is going to go, 
and then it moves, you can anticipate yeah. that and interact with it faster and more accurately. So similarly, if you're thinking, <coughs> oh, I ought to go for a run, but I feel really tired, and you're paying attention to how tired you feel, the running will be less pleasurable. Whereas yeah. if you're thinking, because you've been guided through an image that it might be like this, that when you go for a run, you know, your body's going to feel more alive, the birds will be singing, you'll notice the mm. coolness of the air on your skin or something, then then you're noticing those things more mm. than you would otherwise. So although imagery is a skill that almost everybody has, we don't use it to its full. Mm. Mm. Um, but the other thing with imagery is that it's very closely linked with emotion, as I think we've, we've already said. So, yeah, if you... I, I do this sometimes with students in a lecture, you know, say, OK, imagine you're in the shower and you're naked you know, water's falling on your skin and suddenly you notice something bigger and heavier fall on the back of your neck and you realise that it's a spider that's dropped down from the ceiling. Yeah, you always get a few people wince or squeal or, or shout out. Um, and even if they don't react like that, you know, a lot of people feel the hairs on the back of their neck sort of rise up if they don't particularly like spiders. So um, those emotions, you know, you imagine being happy or feeling sad, you actually feel some of that happiness and sadness mm. in a way that you don't when you're just talking about things. And what's happening in the brain when that's going on? A lot of the areas that are involved in sensory perception are active. So if and you're so imagining... If you, if, so like if, if you read about, if someone talks about a hot cinnamon croissant or something is there even such a thing a hot bits of the brain that, that, that smell fire up yes, when we talk about absolutely. things that smell really yeah. nice yeah. yeah yes I mean what is the difference really in your mind between experiencing something through the senses and building that representation through mental imagery mm. even our sensory perception relies a lot on memory in order to work out what the sensory information is. We think we see the world around us because our eyes are getting a picture on our retina, but that's not how vision mm. works at all. The actual sensory information is very, very impoverished and is limited to a very narrow area in the centre of our vision, mm. and the rest of it is essentially built from memory. Yeah, so sitting across the table from you, I don't see you as a person without legs. You know, which is I what know, the sensory information which is, is. Which is what I can see. Yeah. I can only see the top half of you. But actually I see a whole, a whole person. Yeah. And as the uh, vision moves away from the centre of the point you're looking at, we lose all colour information and it becomes essentially a black and white image. And yet our experience is a, f a full colour mm. environment because we're building that into our internal representations using the knowledge of that things don't change colour just because you're not looking at them anymore. Mm -hmm. So um, our actual day-to-day -day experience of the world is constructed. Um, it's things that psychologists tell each other and take yeah. for granted, but even we still think that we can mm -hmm. see things yeah. that we're looking at and hear, hearing things in the world is a, how on earth we manage to hear things. If you think about the physical processes that have to go on to turn something that creates a sound and transmits sound through the air and hits your eardrums and vibrates hairs, and how on earth that becomes a perception mm. of a sound. Of in, and of individual words as well. When yes. Actually, if you look at 
you know, the sound waves emitted yeah. when somebody's speaking. You can't visually tell where one end and stops and the next To go back to an exercise, if I wobble my tongue and exhale and say lemon, there's a picture of a lemon in your mind. Mm. There's no lemons in the room. Why is that? You know, and that lemon is constructed in the same way as if I actually had a lemon here and took it away again, mm. it's mm. no longer here. You sensed it briefly. It's the same thing mm. that's in your mind. Mm. So the mind is an extremely powerful <laughs> organ and we're really utilising that power to bring um, what people can imagine happening in the future to make that real. Mm. And I think, sorry, no, I was say, you, you asked me the question before John got here about um, something about how we could make people imagine or make people more creative or mm. use their imaginations better. And I was just thinking that I think one of the problems is we don't have to use it very much. It would be good if we used imagination more, but we live in such rich environments. It's not like we're out on the plains trying to predict where a herd of wildebeest might be that we can hunt or something. Actually, we can see and hear and feel stuff all yes. around us all the time, and it's changing quickly, even more so now with mobile phones and mm. everything. Yeah. We have access to so much information that we're, we've almost got out of the habit of having to... Ahead. But helping people imagine things more creatively is actually something we've just finished a long three-year project with um, some dance students where we were helping them to become more creative in their choreography, okay. in their contemporary dance, um, by showing them how to use their imagery, by giving them the confidence that they could actually take control of what they were thinking about and drive it in different directions to make more novel um, ideas because part of what makes it difficult for people to be creative is that often the first things that come to mind are pretty ordinary. Your mind, in order to do all of this reconstruction about the world and so on, it benefits from coming up with the most frequent or common ideas because they're the ones that are most likely to be correct or to be what you're seeing. And if you want to be creative, you've got to come up with the less common mm. or less predictable ideas. So we developed a series of workshops to take these students through where they played with manipulating their mental images. And so we could show them that if they were imagining someone in a hat, for example, they could make that person disappear into the distance or become very tall and thin or a hat could spin around on their head. They can actually do these things in their mind's eye, mm. if you like. Um, and then we showed them how to link visual imagery with sound imagery, so that you could imagine, we'll take a hat again, you can imagine dropping the hat and it making a metallic ringing sound, or making a dull thud, something, and that changes the way that you react to the hat. Mm. And these are all, this might sound like silly games, but these, this is what's going on in the mind of a dancer when they're trying to create some movement and come up with ways of reacting to other dancers or to the movements they've just done. Um, and so we developed these workshops and gave these workshops to first year dance students uh, as part of their curriculum. Um, and uh, then it, we tested them in their second year, so a year after they'd had the workshops, and we looked at the assessments their dance teachers had made of their choreographic 
exercises as part of their degrees. And the group who had had these exercises did actually improve more in their creative thinking, both on pencil and paper tests that were unrelated to dance, and in their teachers' assessments of their creativity and um, mm -hmm. novelty. So you, we can, we think, improve people's sort of creativity by giving them awareness of the skills that they already have, and the, so we call it metacognitive awareness, if you like, that they, they're aware of what they can do, and so we can encourage them to do it more, and give them the belief that they can manipulate images in novel ways in their mind's eye. Do you find when in, in, the, in the function imagery stuff that, that some people who you do it with find it uh, are more able to do it than others and what, what, what factors do we know of that sort of inhibit or lessen people's abilities to be imaginative? Yeah, so there is a, a sizable minority of people who say they don't have imagery um, of those, a lot have imagery in senses that aren't visual. So somebody who struggles to picture a scene very vividly may well still be able to imagine what it feels like to catch a lemon or to smell a lemon. Mm. Um, even with people who say they have no imagery at all in any modality, we in that situation we change the language we use so instead of saying imagine which just makes you think no I can't do that I'm just going to sit here blank um, instead we say so I want you to think through you know, what steps you're going to take today to walk, work on your goal um, think about what the scene looks like that you're in and think about anything you can hear or smell think about how you're going to feel while you're doing it think about how good it feels to succeed. So even though we're not telling people to imagine, we're encouraging them to use their senses. And we haven't tested this experimentally, but in my experience working with counsellors who struggle with imagery, um, that still really changes the way they think about things mm. in a, a very positive way. So it mm. becomes much more emotional and they feel much more driven to do it. Do the and, and what really matters is not so much that I might have more vivid um, imagination of this than Jackie, for example, or for you, but that my image of this is stronger than my image of that. Yeah. And so I might have an overall, I might be very bad and low at sort of vividly imagining things, but as long as I can, I'm imagining this thing more than that thing, then I will be able to use stronger thing more in my decision making mm. than the weaker thing mm. um, so yeah there are scales that sort of try to measure how vivid you're imagining things um, but we've never found any sort of real relate and other people find it hard to find any relationships between individual differences on vividness of imagining things and any <laughs> other behaviour, yes. really. Including so, performance on imagery yeah. tasks. Yeah. So. yeah, so there is a big question as to sort of how much it's your perception of your vividness. Mm. And really, you know, I can't tell how vivid your imagination is. Mm. So it doesn't really matter to me <laughs> how vividly you're able to imagine things. What matters is internally, relatively, mm. how strongly I can imagine different yeah. things. So are, there, are, are there any ways that, that are, I know there's, there's big sort of debates it seems about whether you can measure how 
how imaginative people are and it seems to be there's lots of debates around different mm. approaches and different ways is it possible is it even worth bothering is there any approaches to that that are worth I guess if you're in? selecting somebody for a creative job you want somebody who you can say yes this person's creative but in terms of getting individuals to change in a way that makes them happier or meets society's goals or whatever I think it's more a matter of showing people how they can use their imagery more effectively Um, I want to come back to what John said about metacognition because we use an exercise in functional imagery training for people who say that you know they think they would be able to change if it wasn't for the cravings they have for drugs or for chocolate or crisps or whatever and we do a little exercise called cravings buster just to show people that cravings are under their control um now we know that trying to suppress them is counterproductive you know it's like trying not to think about white elephants that it just comes to mind straight away if you do that um and a lot of people advocate surfing the urge. You just you just go with it until the craving goes away. But that takes a level of motivation to stick with it until it's gone. Um, so instead, when when the people we're working with have got an image of how they're going to work on their goal and how good it's going to feel to have lost that weight or run that marathon or whatever. Um, we then say, okay, just, just for a little while, I want you to bring to mind the crisps, say, that you have cravings for, and, and imagine opening the packet and the smell and taking a bite of one and, and what it tastes like. Make it as vivid as you can. And now switch your attention to that goal image and imagine, you know, getting on the final lap of the race and um, how good you feel you know that you've almost succeeded and make that as vivid as you can and then we say what happened to the crisps and people generally say oh I don't know they just they just went and that's really important to know that you have that control over the cravings because when you're experiencing a craving say for a cigarette when you're just starting to quit it feels for people like it's going to go on forever and it's going to get worse and worse and worse until they give in. So actually having a little bit of training that as long as you know what to divert your mind to, that you can do it very effectively and the cravings will go away, can be useful. And it can build your confidence that you can cope with these things. To get back to what you were saying about selecting people or who are more imaginative or helping people become more imaginative... Um, I mean, there's, there's many sort of different aspects to being creative. You've, yes, you've got to come up with the wacky ideas. And you know, if you had a team of creative people, you want them to come up with novel, wacky ideas. But you want them to do more than that as well. Just being wacky is not going to mm-hmm. solve the task. You've also got to work out which of these wacky ideas are worth pursuing, which ones can actually help. So there's really two steps there. You've got to come up with the strange the unusual and then you've got to do the sort of selection identifying which of these are worth pursuing developing Mm. being more so you've got to be both um, open-minded and exploring all sorts of um, possibilities uncritically 
and then you've got to be able to almost rapidly work out which ones to become mm. very focused on mm. to turn those into successful ideas and you need both of those skills mm. now it might be in a team you've got one person who's really good at coming up with wackiness mm -hmm. and the other person who's very good at saying no 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 oh yes what did you just say mm -hmm. and then can develop the idea or it might be you get the, both of those skills in one person so that they can be quickly thinking no no maybe this maybe that maybe oh that. oh hang on how about this mm. and that's what you really need and it's, so it's, it's it's juggling both of those abilities that you really need to be creative and also say that's exactly what we're doing in science so when you talk about what society mm. can do to improve creativity the focus shouldn't just be on Things that are traditionally thought of as being imaginative, because so I think you know improving science education so it moves away from learning facts and more towards science is our way of dealing with uncertainty, mm. dealing with unknowns, and and trying to work out what the world would be like if. Um, so I think it's it's really important that society doesn't think there's this subset of people who are creative and then there's just everybody else. Mm. That belongs in the arts yeah. field. Yeah. And you mentioned before about about smartphones, and and you've and you've been doing this work for some time. Have you noticed? You know, there's there's all different research around the impact that those mm. technologies are having on our ability to concentrate, on our ability to focus. Have you noticed changes in how people are able to do what you ask them to do as a result of those technologies over that time? I haven't. It's not something I've studied. I suppose I see it largely as a good thing in that. It, it brings the world to people so you know if you if you want to know if the world could be different or if it's different somewhere else you can just google it now. you can just look on your phone um, so I think potentially people are much less bound by the environments they find themselves in mm. but whether they're using that information well I think is another question yeah okay um um, 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 um. So in the paper that I read, you wrote, uh, you wrote uh, that the functional imagery training works by providing the individual with personally salient, vivid visual images of their desire to achieve a goal that will be triggered by my, by any episodes by an episode my hand right, sorry, sorry of episodes of temptation inconsistent with that goal. Yeah. Um, I wonder how how you might. If there are learnings from that mm -hmm. that we could apply, what we were talking about before about how how we might help a society to imagine a, a different future. Mm. What are the learnings about when we seem to be at the moment stuck in this space yeah. of the IPCC saying we've got to reimagine everything and we just it is just not happening. Mm. So, I think on an individual level, which is obviously kind of expensive to do but that's that's what we've been doing is working one-to-one -one with people um, I think it's about changing the narrative away from oh I oughtn't to be doing that to actually if I did this it could be really good so we recently bought an electric car for the first time I don't particularly like cars but one of the things I've noticed is when you get out of it it doesn't smell like our old diesel car does and now I've noticed it I think oh that's really nice you know that sort of adds to the experience of driving it but it, sometimes it's helping people notice things and 
I think the problem with climate change is people don't really know what it's going to be like, or even if they think positive things, oh, we're going to have more warm summers without yeah. being but able to see how that affects the world that they live in, because it's and such the a big question. Is, you know, we've got to stop doing this, we've got to yeah. stop doing that, you've got to not have plastic bags, you've got to turn, you know, not have fossil fuels, and no one's saying what you should do. Well, it, well, they are saying some of the things you should do, should do but the, not focusing on how your life is going to be better if you do this, other than that the polar bears won't all die, you know, which is too remote mm. and mm. unpleasant a thing to think about. So if we, you keep focusing on all of the scary negative things that will happen unless you change your behaviour, then people don't like to dwell on those things. Mm. So they'll agree with you if you're showing them these things, but then when you've taken those images or ideas away, they won't keep coming back to people popping into their heads in order to influence the decisions mm. they make. Yeah, and that's not the problem. Nice if, people, if people are thinking about, say, having a holiday in Cornwall that's close, or having a holiday in Spain that means flying there, at that moment they're not thinking polar bears. They're thinking, mm. oh, but I'd like to go to Spain. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so how can how can that be nudged? How can that be? I. For me, I think it's partly the sort of storytelling aspect that actually, you know, if having a holiday in Cornwall, say, isn't just about the holiday, it's not just weighing it up, you know, will it be sunnier in Cornwall or in Spain, but it's about this is the type of person I am, you know, what I'm doing is something positive that will make a difference. Um, so I think it's that, that bigger kind of story about mm. being the sort of person that, and being in the sort of world that you want to live in. Um, but that's a really hard thing to achieve, I think, because people are very bound up in these binary choices, you know. Mm. <coughs> Do I want to go to the party with new clothes or without new clothes or something? And it just becomes about the clothes. Mm. It doesn't become about, Do I actually need this? You yeah. know, is there something better I could do? But the trick, I think, is to to identify sort of at a societal level all of the small things you'd like people to do and almost perhaps to unlink those from the goal of saving the planet and to link them more to um, personally relevant goals. So, for example, we I had some students a couple of years ago before the plastic bag ban came in doing can we help people make less use of disposable one-use plastics um, and we didn't couch this in terms of in order to cut down on marine litter. It was just about um, for you, you know, if, if you had a refillable bottle in your bag, how would you feel about that? Mm -hmm. and, try, and for each person coming up with their own reasons why they would feel happier reusing um, something rather than trying to tell them why they ought to. Mm. And it's the same with the weight loss thing, coming back to that. We don't tell people how to lose weight mm. or why they should lose weight. We ask them why they should. What mm. are their personal goals? Because those are the ones that matter to people. Mm. But also, it feels really horrible to sit there and be told that maybe you're overweight because you've been eating the wrong things. Yeah. You, know, you just feel belittled. And maybe and you're destroying the planet because you drove yeah. your diesel car in today or whatever. Um, whereas... If you get people to talk about 
how they want things to be. Often they know what foods. One of our participants said, look, everybody knows you shouldn't eat the whole chocolate cake. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess the thing, the, the, the thing that appealed to me with the, with the lemon thing is, is it is... Is is about how we tell the stories about how it turned out okay. How do we tell the stories about if we get through the next twenty years and mm. we make the changes that we have to make? Mm. It could be, you know, the air would be better and we'd have better parties yes. and mm, the food exactly. would be more interesting. And and I could, and the the thing that I was looked to is is actually how veganism has changed. How it yeah. so in the eighties, veganism was it angry was and black and yeah. miserable and horrible. Yeah. Everyone looked really ill. And now, now everyone's it's all really beautiful, and the food's really colourful, <laughs> yeah. and amazing, yeah. and it's not going on so much about you know this, that, and the other hands to the cows. It's like, look at this, isn't it interesting? And I feel great, and you know, mm. it's, it's completely that changed. Yeah. It's very psychology, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes, so one of the things that we're doing in functional imagery training is to get people to see the broader implications. So their goal of weight loss isn't just about being slim. It's about mm. having the energy to run around with their grandchildren. Yeah, it's about or, what they want to be slim to do. Yeah. And I went to an interesting shop in, in Panath that my friend said, well, can you just pop down to the shop? It's going to close at five o'clock, so be quick. And I went to this shop and I wandered around and it was sort of a typical like, vegan shop with you know interesting things on the shelves. And it was packed. And everybody was standing around chatting. They weren't shopping. It was like, okay, it's gone five o'clock now. Everybody's still here. And I said, what's, you know, what's the story here? And the shop owner was somebody who'd inherited quite a lot of money or won quite a lot of money, wanted to do something good for the environment and thought, right, selling environmentally friendly food is one way to go. But then he thought, I want to do something for the community as well. So I'll have a shop that is a community centre that people can come to and buy stuff, but also talk to people and they can start by talking to me and then maybe they'll start talking to each other. And so I won't close the shop until everybody's had enough. So he saw this as his public service. And my impression was people were going to the shop because it was fun, rather than because it was local and, OK, it cost a bit more, but it saved getting on the bus to go to the supermarket. And so that changes the narrative that you go there because you want to do it, because it's going to be nice, mm. Mm. rather than because you ought to. Yeah, so in turn, instead of just saying focusing on price and quality. Mm. You've got the whole experience, shopping experience. Mm. Which, of course, big brands do that as well. And you know, the, all the major shops try and uh, lure you into the shops mm. by the experience of shopping there. But they're getting worse and worse at it because they also want to sell stuff online and save costs. And yeah. So they're all mm. closing mm. down. And I think that's something we've really lost and where maybe there's most sort of traction... If you were to design an event, which which and the aim of the event was to give people a sort of a multi-sensory immersion mm. in what the 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 thing that always comes to my mind. There was a thing that was happening in two thousand six in London, the Sultan's Elephant. Do you remember that thing, where they had the one day people woke up and there was this. Uh, uh, in in the middle of London, there was this sort of wooden steampunk-looking Jules Verne sort of wooden rocket mm. that looked like it had crashed in the street, and all the tarmac was all buckled up, and there was smoke all around it. And the police had cordoned it off, and no one knew what was going on. And then over the next couple of days, they, then they opened this rocket, and this amazing like 
puppet of this girl got out who was about let's eight year old girl got out it was about the size of two houses who then went walking around London and could pick little kids up and look at them it was absolutely amazing it was this French mm-hmm. theatre company and then this huge elephant arrived and then there's this story start to come out that the girl travelled through time and the sultan on the elephant had come to meet her and then they That's met amazing. at Hyde Park and the elephant yeah. sort of bowed down in front of her and like millions of people came to see this thing and then when at the end she got back in the rocket and then disappeared and everyone was in tears you know and I kind of think there's something about how we can create events that give people a, um, a, the experience of if you if you woke up and it was 2030 and all this had happened mm. and you're walking around in it and you can see the food being grown in the high street and you can see the different kind of an economy mm. and you can see the different sort of energy and you get that sort of sense of, of, of what it feels like is there anything that you might contribute from your work and your understanding that might help to yes. make that more effective? Yeah, I mean, memories of the future, really, yeah. is what you're talking about. Um, and the idea that um, by, by briefly or temporarily putting yourself in the future and thinking about what it's like there, and then coming back to the present, that does influence the decisions that you make about your behaviour between now and the future and how you can cope and change your things in order to bring that future state about, perhaps. Um, So you've probably heard of the marshmallow test where you put a marshmallow in front of a child and say, I'm just going to go out of the room and if the marshmallow is still here, if you haven't eaten it, by now come back, I'll give you two marshmallows. Loads of funny with Donald Trump at the inauguration of the guy saying, I give you one marshmallow now or I could make you the president in 15 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) That would be great. (laughs) But anyway, this delayed gratification it's called is very hard for young children to do it's hard for adults to do as well but we've sort of mastered it somewhat yeah, yeah so. but there's there are all sorts of clever psychological tests you can give people about saying would you prefer 17 pounds in two days or 43 pounds in 96 days and so on and people you know there's a there are curves of decision making where people trade off getting a reward sooner rather than a larger reward later and by putting yourself in the future and imagining those futures you can change your perspective and increase people's sort of tolerance of the mm. delays and this has been experimentally shown that you can mm. do this so i think you're right about you know that little sort of theater group giving this multimedia experience or whatever helped them that became their reality mm. and so if you could conjure up a multimedia experience of a um, either no, I'm not going to say a post climate change world, but one where we have solved the uh, climate change crisis mm. and what is it like to live in there. So, if there was a very uh, embodied, vivid, multi sensory experience of being in an environment where there were lots of birds on the trees and you know the, it was pleasant to be in and there weren't there wasn't traffic everywhere you know and there no, were no like, traffic and litter and yeah silent sort of transportation things going somehow that used renewable resources and so on where everything had been solved and people people chatting and, that and social aspect to be I think and there was sort of a wise old man who said do you remember how we <laughs> used to you know, how we did this and we did that and we succeeded 
So, and then you come back to the real life and you have got then the self-efficacy. It can be done. These were the things that were done. It was nice when we had done it. Mm. In, and that's all the same sorts of things that we're doing with functional imagery training in a sense of saying, you know, when you have lost weight, what's it going to be like? And, and what did you do to get yeah, there? It's, and it's how did you it do it? And as well. Yeah. So, yeah, all the small steps, the old man is reminding you of how you did them and you succeeded in them mm. as well. Uh, and, and, and it's linked to being feeling nice about it. Mm. And it really makes me sort of think that actually there's, that there's a big part of that which is, a, which is, which is the multisensory part of it. Mm. So that actually when you would emerge into that, what it sounds like and what it feels like and what it smells like mm. is as important as as what you're seeing because mm. a lot of those things I've seen before just focus purely on yeah. we're going to do we're going to do visual mock-ups of what this place could be like or mm. we're going to do you know yeah. use photoshop to show what this place could be like but actually the smells and the yeah. tactile side of it are just mm. as important but I think the social side as well because you know people in cars are quite isolated and you know think oh it's fun because I'm listening to my choice music and I haven't got so many people around me or whatever but actually yeah if you have that social side and people have time to sit and chat because they're not worried about whether they've missed the bus whatever because there are lots of buses and um and it's kind of relaxed and friendly and fun Mm. um it stops being about just practical experiences and starts being more emotionally about yeah, this is the person I want to be. I want to be in a nice, clean environment where people trust each other and are friendly and mm. and I don't have to worry that I'm doing something damaging just because it's quick. Or Wouldn't you think it would help if you easy. take people and say, right, you know what it's like living in the start of the sort of new millennium, etc., the 21st century. You know, you, we take all these things for granted, what we can currently do and all the facilities we have, etc., all the knowledge we have. Imagine you're living in 1643 or something, or... 1589, you know, and there's plagues and, and there's shit everywhere. Shit everywhere. The, the only fuel is wood and coal and so on. But you have still got, you still know everything from 600, 500 years in the future. What are you going to do? How are you mm. going to make people's lives better? Um, and think about what changes could you make? You know, obviously, you couldn't. Uh, you might not want to, but you couldn't sort of go and get some fossils and loads of petrol and diesel and oil, because you, the resources you'd need to get that out would be mm. impossible. You couldn't build a computer because you haven't got the electricity or the silicon engineering to do it and the microchips and so on. But you could still do things. You could train people to wash their hands before doing uh, and mm. cutting into people or something. And so you could make some small changes that would have huge benefits. And maybe by getting people to think about how they could use their existing knowledge to change, to bring about mm-hmm. change at a sort of a small scale level. Um, she might help them think about what they could do now to bring about small mm-hmm. change mm-hmm. Um, personally that would have big consequences. There's a guy at Carnegie Mellon University called Stuart Candy who's a futurist and he does these things where they create like four, he says, he says it's like visceral experiences of the future yeah. so so you you go to a particular place which they've which they've taken over and you go through four different half hour immersive things so in one of them you go into for example a room where it's 2050 and 
corporations are allowed to run for governments. So you're basically <laughs> listen, 